0: Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zetner Geology Podcast, Episode 30 Bretz's Field Evidence. Thanks for listening. I'd like to talk specifically about some of the most exciting things that J. Harlan Bretz was able to discover and document for the first time 100 years ago in eastern Washington. I talked generally about that last time. I talked about Brett's life. I talked about all the exciting things that I was able to kind of unearth, at least for myself, and maybe new to you as well, if you know the basic talking points of the Brett's story. Ice Age floods, nobody believed him. Eventually, he became um, embraced as ahead of his time. And we now spend a lot of time out in eastern Washington talking about Brett's and his evidence for this cataclysmic, this catastrophic, this once-in-a-lifetime flood, or series of floods, as it turns out. But when I finished that episode last time, I realized we really didn't get to the meat and potatoes, the actual stuff that Bretz was able to discover and document almost immediately, within days of seeing some of this stuff for the very first time, was able to uh, describe it, map it, sketch it, And understand the significance of it. And here we are a hundred years later, and it's still quite powerful. Uh, In particular, I took a group of people over to a place called the Drumheller Channels last weekend. It was a beautiful early November weekend. Uh, Terrific weather. Um, The light is always good this time of year. The sunlight, the shadows, etc., And we had a lot of people showed up from all over the place. It's always exciting to be out in the field with people enthused, and they were definitely enthused. And I chose the Drumheller Channels because that was a key place for Bretts to point to, to say, uh, You don't believe me? Well, if I could just take you to the Drumheller Channels, I could prove to you that this is a catastrophic flooding story. So, since I can't take you out there, let me try to describe what's out there and add a few more detail from the trip that we did uh, that was, uh, I I think uh, worked pretty well. Maybe we'll do this. Before Brett showed up, Eastern Washington had been looked at uh, kind of uh, accidentally in a few places at a few times, um, going back into the early 1800s, there were folks coming through the Grand Coulee, white folks. Uh, a reverend uh, describing the, the Grand Coulee as clearly an old channel of the Columbia River in his mind. And that took that idea that the Columbia... Oh, good Lord. Let me try that again. That idea that the, that the Grand Coulee was a former river channel... In other words, the Columbia River left its current channel and and started flowing through the Grand Coulee and then eventually kind of redirected itself back to its present location. Um, That was in the literature by not only him, but uh, a few others as well. And then the other idea, which was totally unknown to me, is that in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, again, before Bretz arrived in 1922, there had been some geologic work documenting that a portion of the Pacific Northwest had been underwater. And the thought was, I think most people thought it was uh, marine water. It was some sort of uh, kind of a downwarping of the Pacific Northwest. And therefore sea level was able to encroach inland almost like a Chesapeake, Chesapeake Bay type thing. Um, and the evidence for that, the submergence, were, were twofold. One, there were these uh, these kind of sedimentary beds that looked like they were water deposited in some sort of lake or marine setting. And then secondly, I think I mentioned this briefly last time, there were these exotic looking boulders, these erratics, these granites, that were up high, they were on the the. the, the steep slopes of the Columbia River Gorge, and then if you followed them, as um, a few workers did, into eastern Washington, you kept finding these granite boulders at relatively high elevations, quite famously about the elevation 1,250 feet above sea level. There were just a bunch of those boulders that you would always find at that kind of high-water mark, and and a guy named Condon, Thomas Condon, I think was his name, in, in Oregon proposed this idea that there were kind of these blocks of ice that must have been floating in that water. Maybe a marine body of water, but regardless, uh, icebergs that were carrying these boulders, and then the bergs, the iceberg would, would uh, come to rest on the margin of that body of water, and then the, the water would drain away, the icebergs would melt, and then those boulders would be left. It was hard to come up with another hypothesis to explain those boulders. So there was even a name to the body of water, Lake Lewis. So Lake Lewis and the Upper Grand Coulee being a former Columbia River channel were, were definitely in print in multiple places before Brett's arrives. But beyond that, there had not been much done in eastern Washington. And so that's where I'd like to really start slowing down and focus specifically. Um I don't know if I have a top 10 list or not of, uh, of Bretz's evidence, but let me try a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, of course, the channels themselves. So Brettz is the guy that coined the term channeled scablands. And if you're unfamiliar with this, if you've never been to Eastern Washington, let me describe it. Let me just pretend we're driving east to west across the scablands. The drive it could be on the freeway today it could be on some dusty you know dirt road uh, in 1922, but if you're heading east to west or west to east you're you're driving through this agricultural region. Uh, if there's water available and in 22 there wasn't a lot of water available, uh, there were thick soils, fifty feet of soil, hundred feet of soil, just real rich um, silty soils. And then as you continue to drive, you suddenly like, oh, damn, where'd that soil go? It's gone. And you typically drop a little bit in elevation. And then you start crossing one of these scabland tracks. And that was a term used by farmers of the day, scablands, meaning that, you know, the the soil is gone. If the soil was there, it's definitely gone now. There's no ag. It's exposed uh, brown lava rock. Uh, it's not perfectly flat, so there's these kind of scabs, there's these little little uh, potholes and other things that are kind of drilled into this rock. Um, but the point is, you can't do anything with it uh, as a farmer, except maybe uh, run some cattle and have them graze a little bit on some of the native grasses. But the point is, if you keep driving, then you abruptly leave the scab land, you're back into some of that soil again then another scab land track then another soil horizon etc back and forth back and forth well nobody had really mapped those channels and Brett's was the first to say well okay we got this we've just got a few detailed topographic maps for the most part eastern washington is a very poorly mapped and so we're going to locate ourselves and we're going to figure out uh, the the scale of these channels, these 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 places where the soil is missing. And as he started to draw and started to map uh, week after week after week, uh, he started to realize a few things. There was a pattern. There was an overall pattern to these channels. He called them anastomosing channels or braided channels. The channels would, uh, if you got up high enough in your mind, look like a braided channel of uh, water coming off of an ice sheet. And indeed, the the few geologists who had thought about those channels before Brett's arrived assumed that they were Ice Age river channels, meaning that the ice sheet was to the north. Everybody agreed that. Everybody agreed that these channels had water running in them. Everybody did agree with that. But they just visualized normal outwash, normal glacial outwash, normal amounts of water rivers, gradually flowing and removing soil. So Bretz was the first to show the map pattern of those channels. Okay, fine. So they, they're anastomosing. Excellent. Next step. Um, they are so braided, the channel pattern is so braided, so anastomosing, that the places where the soils are thick are uh, islands. Now, that was new. The fact that you look at the, the pattern of these channels and you realize that every one of these places that has good agriculture, good, thick soils, is completely surrounded by this scab land material. In other words, there was, there was running water going around each of these islands. And Bretz was the first to say, well, I know that these thick piles of soil are on top of the basalt, which means they're younger, of course. But I don't think they were deposited as individual islands. Brett's is the first guy to say, I think there was a one thick, continuous blanket of soil across all of eastern Washington, pretty much from the Rockies to the Cascades. Nothing but thick soil. And that all of this running water in Bretz's mind, was a catastrophic flood. And that flood had so much water and so much energy and created this pattern of channels that you're washing away so much of that soil in these individual channels. And it had to be a quick thing with a lot of water. That's where his critics kicked in. They said, you don't need all of those channels full of water at the same time. And Brett says, absolutely you do. And I'll show you more evidence to prove that I have to have every one of these channels full of water at the same time, during the same catastrophic flood that lasted a few days, not centuries or, or thousands of years or millions of years. Okay, so we've got the channels. We've got these islands of uh, thick soil. Fine. Uh, as I mentioned quickly, the, the, the islands of soil are topographically higher than the, than the scab lands. But if you really look carefully, and Brett did with his students, started measuring the slope right at that boundary. So can you picture getting off of one of the islands of thick soil and then dropping down to one of these uh, uh, lava rock scablands? Uh, it's a precipitous drop there was typically about a 35 degree angle in slope as you get off of the island of soil and get down to the to the to the to the, to the lava rock uh, that's evidence just that that abrupt transition was evidence for catastrophic flooding this wasn't a gradual thing this has to be quick but brett's continues you know, he, if you want to say something powerful, and this is true in all branches of the sciences, if you want to say something powerful, you better have a lot of different kinds of evidence all pointing to the same conclusion. You can't just have one or two pieces of evidence. It's got to be a robust robust uh, collection of evidence, um, ideally, that, that comes from all different angles, but leads to the same conclusion. And so Bretz was so adamant and writing these papers every winter throughout the 1920s that he had all these different kinds of evidence as a suite, as a set of evidence. He kept saying that. He, he, you know, there's, there's all these different things. If you could only get out here, he's saying. Okay. Um, at the Drumheller Channels, uh, we not only found one of the, the Scabland tracks, no big deal, there's, there's dozens of them, But the Drumheller channels were so important to Brett's because not only were we in one of these channels where the water was flowing, but within one channel that's about nine miles wide, there are dozens and dozens of individual channels that are crisscrossing themselves. So instead of just a, a little river flowing passively through the Drumheller channels area as a glacial river, you have these deep cuts and these rock basins, these these absolute holes that are carved into the bedrock that now contain many lakes. But the fact that you can see dozens of individual small channels within the main channel called the Drumheller channels, and the fact that these small channels are crisscrossing and some of the deeper channels within Drumheller channels are, you guessed it, deeper than the smaller ones and the smaller channels are actually hanging valleys going into the bigger ones and if you start mapping out those little crisscrossing channels it becomes pretty wild in a hurry more evidence okay, we can do that before the ice age erosion before that Drumheller channel's area was carved there was thick soil across the way we've already established that But within the thick soil, there was something called a dendritic river pattern. You might have to Google this one now, dendritic, D-E-N-D-R-I-T-I-C, I I think, dendritic. And if you look at a dendritic river pattern or stream drainage pattern, uh, the common analogy is a tree. You have a main trunk, and then you have three or four major branches coming off of the trunk, And then off of these branches, you have smaller branches, and each of those branches have smaller branches, etc. And by the time you get out to the top and to the sides of the tree, you've got these dinky little twigs coming into the branches. And that's what a dendritic drainage pattern looks like, which truly is a gradual, mature drainage pattern. That was a word Brett's used a lot in his papers get in that soil area, it's a mature topography. It's a graceful, sexy look to the landscape with these dendritic patterns indicating lots of time coming through the area. So, before Drumheller channels were cut, not only do we have this dendritic uh, drainage coming all the way through. Do you hear that train? I'll tell you at the end of this uh, this episode why you hear that. Um Now I'm distracted. Uh, Not only do we have the dendritic pattern, but we have a topographic divide. So again, if we go back to eastern Washington before these Ice Age floods, we not only visualize 100 feet of thick soil all across the area, but we have some folds, we have some ridges, and we have some actual uh, topographic divides with little streams flowing away, dendritic patterns going away from each of those divides. You with me? I don't know how this is working or not, but let's continue anyway. Well, by God, the Drumheller channels are a place where not only the soil was swept away, and a lot of that dendritic stuff is gone, but the divide itself, which is hundreds of feet tall, is completely blasted through. This is one of the biggest lines of evidence for Bretz's catastrophic flooding. A pre existing divide with well developed dendritic patterns on both sides of the divide, gradually draining every drop of rainwater that comes from the heavens. The divide itself is gone. <laughs> And he says, you're going to get rid of that divide. A whole section of that divide is just chewed up and spit out. You need a catastrophic flood to do that. You need water to actually overtop that divide. And if, if you argue, like everybody's arguing with me, Brett says, if you argue that this is normal glacial river story stuff, there's no way that divide would be overtopped. You'd just have swollen drainages. You'd make the channeled scablands, but those, those channels would be deflected by the ridges that existed pre- before the Ice Age floods. That was Brett saying total baloney. You, you've got uh, six different places in eastern Washington where a previously existing ridge is gone, and, a, and an Ice Age flood channel goes right through the middle of that ridge. So the Drumheller channels was is is a, is a place for that for sure. Uh, I meant to, uh, and I've got it right now, remember, I remember, I've got some passages, almost like I'm reciting poetry to you here, uh, but I've got some specific passages from some of Bretz's 1920s papers to give you a feeling for his approach to describe some of this field evidence and also uh, to show you how differently people were writing in scientific papers in the 1920s. Here's Brett's in 1928. No one with an eye for landforms can cross eastern Washington in daylight without encountering and being impressed by the scab land. Like great scars marring the otherwise fair face onto the p- plateau are these elongated tracks of bare black rock carved into mazes and buttes and canyons. With eyes only a few feet above the ground, he's talking about himself, With eyes only a few feet above the ground, the observer must travel back and forth repeatedly and must record his observations mentally, photographically, by sketch and by map, before he can form anything approaching a complete picture. Yet long before the paper bearing these words has yellowed, the average observer, looking down from the air as he crosses the region, will see almost at a glance the picture here drawn, by piecing together the ground-level observations of months and months of work. The region is unique. Let the observer take wings of the morning to the uttermost parts of the earth. He will nowhere find its likeness anywhere else on earth. All right. J. Harlan Bretts. I'll give you a couple more little tastes, and then I'll give you one more passage, which brings the personal part of this into, uh, snaps it into focus. Um, Hundreds of cataract ledges, of basins and canyons eroded into bedrock, of isolated buttes of the bedrock, of gravel bars piled high above the valley floors, and of island hills of weaker overlying formations are left at the cessation of this episode. Everywhere the record is of extraordinary, vigorous, subfluvial action. The physiographic expression of the region is without parallel. It is unique, this channeled scabland of eastern Washington. So that reminds me that another key piece of evidence where he needed a lot of water in each of the channels is the fact that he had these piles of river rocks. So not only do you have these channels that where, the, where the, the soil is gone, you got a bunch of gravel and river stones and even boulders. In some cases, those piles, we call them flood bars, they're just piles of loose rocks that were clearly brought in by water. In some cases, in one of those channels, the pile of rocks is 300 feet high. Well, right off the bat, you need... At minimum, 500 feet of water flowing over the top of that. You can't pile a bunch of those rocks in there without the water overtopping the pile. So it's basic observation like that. It's not like he was seeing stuff that was, you know, impossible to see with the naked eye. I mean, he's he's simply describing these things, but because of his previously existing. Uh, Because of his previous examples and experience with mapping at the south edge of Puget Lowland, for instance, the Puget Ice Sheet down by Centralia, or even back in Michigan, he saw nothing like this. All right, while you're hearing the papers turn, again, I'll give you the story on the audio here and come in just a bit. Uh, But I've got, uh, let's see, which version of this story do I have? Oh, yeah, I've got the good one. Uh, so there we were, standing out in the Drumheller channels. I guess there were 120 people there and about, I don't know, 40 cars. It was kind of a lot of, a lot, lot of folks. But we've been doing these trips long enough now where uh, everybody kind of knows the drill. And even if you're new, they, you, you kind of stumble into the vibe of the thing. People are very cooperative, and uh, they have the driving directions and the GPS coordinates, and they know roughly the time that we're going to be at each of the stops. And so it's kind of fun. So uh, one of the stops, we, we kind of drove off of one of those um, soil areas called the Frenchman Hills, where today there's a lot of orchards and vineyards because there's water pumped out of Columbia River, the Columbia Irrigation Project, which was not there in the 1920s. But we dropped off of one of those soil areas, past the 30-degree slope, dropped down with all of our 40 vehicles. Uh, down a little dirt road, uh, parked at Goose Lake, and then uh, hiked, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes out to this kind of uh, knob. There are no trails or anything. It's, it's a very remote area. And the reason for telling you that is that you are literally looking at the landscape as it was in 1922. I mean, if you look off into this, the guts of Drumheller Channels, today it's a wildlife refuge, public land. And it's completely like it was when Brett's and his three students were hiking through. It's rare. Uh, Even even the sound, it was so quiet that uh, we could just go back in time. So I think that worked quite well. As I'm reading some of these things, and and, and, and as I read this little story I'm about to tell you, um, it worked because, boy, my God, we were right there. Right there in time and place. With Harley and his three students, so this is a favorite story of mine, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you right now. Um, I have a public face these days, and so people seem to know who I am. And there's a lot of emails, and there's a lot of tips, and a lot of uh, such and such, and that and that. And um, word got out that I was doing this Drumheller Channels trip, and uh, I heard from a gal and an older gentleman who had deep family history in the Drumheller area. And once I found this story I'm about to read to you, I immediately shared this story with those two folks who had not heard the story before, and we tried to figure out the best we could, using human history and their family history, uh, where this ranch was. A couple of ranches come, a farmhouse and a ranch. So let's do it. This is from Brett's uh, remembering a very spe- specific night in Drumheller Channels in 1923. He's looking back when he's a little older now. Darkness, he, so Brett's is with three students and they don't have a car and they have figured out how to uh, jump the trains, uh, get close to this Drumheller Channels area, get off the train, and walk for a few days until they can find their way back to another rail line. Darkness found us well past the black sand dunes that dam back Moses Lake, but open country still had enough night sky light to travel by. Then we encountered some ragged, rocky outcrops, around which Crab Creek became almost lost. Drumheller Ranch was somewhere among the craggy black basalt knobs, blades, pinnacles, rock basins, and dry channels, but we missed it in the darkness. Well, we stumbled, we climbed, we descended in the darkness for an hour or more, heartily sick of having attempted the traverse at night. I have since seen a topographic survey and aerial views of Drumheller channels and unhesitantly give this area the palm for complexity of all flood-made topography. Fairly close to midnight, we saw a single light a mile or so ahead and found easier going. We were escaping that tangle of short channels, rock basins, basalt buttes, that is, getting across the backbone of the Frenchman Springs Anticline. That's the divide I was telling you about, by the way. Of course, we aimed for the light. It proved to be a farmhouse. Reaching it, we went through the unshaped... Shit, hang on. Got to the good part now. It was a page turn. Reaching it, we saw through the unshaded windows a scantily clad woman fussing over two young children, bedded down. <laughs> I got a text from a mother. Okay, great. Oh shit. Hang on. Alright, I got I got stuff I gotta tell you, man. I, I, we're seeing. All right, you're just going to have to deal with that. Hang on. Let me get back to my story. Woman fussing over two young children bedded down on the floor of the bare boards. This wouldn't do, this peeping town behavior. We shortly found the barn and a wagon loaded with newly threshed wheat. Sleeping on the wheat was the farmer. We awakened him, introduced ourselves, and craved of refuge for the remainder of the night. Yes, we could sleep on the floor just next to the... uh, I'm screwing up this. Yes, we could sleep on the just-threshed wheat with him. The next morning, he invited the four of us to breakfast. All that his daughter could provide was a carton of breakfast flakes. Glimpses of the interior of the house showed a table and a few straight chairs, probably a bed or so that we didn't see. Otherwise, that house showed the direst rural poverty. We rode to Warden and a railroad elevator. En route, the farmer told us a bit of his misfortunes and stated firmly that once he got a crop, he was abandoning the farm. Years later, I saw his farm again. The house and barn were gone. The field was gone. The site was now an active gravel pit. Yes, he had been trying to make a scabland gravel bar into a farm. Jay Harlan Bretts talking to you probably at age 70, thinking back to the 1923 field season in Drumheller Channels. So, the descendants that I had lead that last couple of tri- uh, stops on our field trip were helping us picture where that ranch house was, where that gravel pit was, where the Drumheller Ranch was. It could be a big cattle ranch, and they're running sheep through there. So there was a nice human element as well, not only with Brett's, but some of the uh, early fi- families uh, that had settled um, around the turn of the last century in that area. So, do you have a little bit better feel for the field evidence that Brett's is talking about? Anastomosing channels, islands of thick soil that originally were intact, but now broken into individual islands because of these floodwaters traveling around each of them and carving out uh, these channels. The channels actually busting through these dendritic patterns that existed before the floods, and the floods having enough water in them to actually tear through some ridges that existed in Drumheller area and even back up towards Coulee City in the upper Grand Coulee. The gravel bars themselves are so thick, the piles of rocks are so tall that we need water in all those channels simultaneously. And it was this evidence that Brett kept describing in paper after paper, and it wasn't until the 1950s that people actually started getting out to these places and seeing them for themselves. That's really what it boils down to. If it was easier to travel to these places in the 1920s, I don't think this debate would have gone on forever. And I don't think Bretts would have been this laughingstock. But the simple fact that all of his critics had never been to these places and yet were adamant is the real crux of the matter. Okay, why are you hearing all this extra audio? I'm going to just finish this episode with a a a slight rant. Um, I, I like to operate by myself. I feel like I can do a few things, and I like to just produce. I just like to have a committee of one, basically myself, and I just make these lectures downtown, and I do these other things, and there's very few uh, uh, other folks that kind of get in the way, and I prefer it that way. Well, this past two weeks have been kind of a, um, I've been on edge. Um, the podcast, which totally is solitary, Um, it was going quite well and then the university decided they needed to change media platforms or whatever the right word is and so I had to relearn a whole new system it's like why are we changing and unclear, unclear nobody's got an answer and then it turns out that this this platform uh, does not now communicate with Spotify, which is one of the most popular ways to get podcasts. I'm hearing from all these people who say, "What happened to your podcast? Why did why did you, the whole feed get t- torn down?" And the answer is, somebody at the university decided they needed to change the platform, and so it no longer works with Spotify. Okay, well that doesn't answer why you're hearing all this audio. Well. I also got tired of dealing with the recording studio on campus. Uh, it took me forever to get in there. When I finally got in there, they changed the, the locks. and had to figure out how to get into the room. Uh, then i get in there, and, and then the, the audio stuff is uh, a bunch of students are in there using it. Fine, but every student is, is got their own settings and things, and so it took forever to try to get the settings to work. You want to know the bottom line? I bought myself a microphone, damn it. And I'm here at home, in the attic. (laughs) And uh, so if the audio sounds a little hollow, or uh, different at least, and you heard the dings on my laptop, I forgot to close a couple of things. And you heard a train, because we live in a town that's got a train that goes through, especially in the evenings, you can hear it through the windows. So... This is the new approach. I'm going to be able to, I think, record more podcasts because I can just have breakfast and just march up here and do it while it's on my brain. Uh, but it might take me a while to figure out how these can sound a little bit more professional. And I'm still not quite sure the direction we're going with future episodes. Hey, man, Brett's field evidence. That was a little bit more detail than you had last time. Hope you felt it was worthwhile. Hey, you're a loyal listener. You made it to the end of this one. Thanks for listening to all that, including the little uh, salvo at the end. And we'll look for you next time. Goodbye.